the history of space. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Margaret Weidekamp. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. I was watching CBS Sunday Morning sometime back, a report on outer space, when they brought Margaret Weidekamp on camera and introduced her as a space historian. For some reason, that just struck me. I, are there a lot of space historians? There are actually quite a few of us uh, who have been interested in both the history of technology, the history of science, uh, the social and cultural history of space flight, uh, which is particularly my interest. And uh, so, yes, we're a, a small, but it's a great community of scholars and uh, really interested in what has it meant for humanity to begin to be a spacefaring people and what does that mean for what where we're going and what does that mean for who we are back on Earth. Margaret Weidekamp works at the Smithsonian Institution's National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C., and chairs the Space History Department. Uh, what do you and, and what do the other folks in that department do? Well, so as curators, we are responsible for the artifacts in the national collection at the Smithsonian, specifically those within the National Air and Space Museum. And so we have particular collecting areas. The mission of the National Air and Space Museum, in addition to being one of the most popular museums in the world, is really to be a material repository for the history of the nation, for us and for the world. And so we are interested in collecting physical objects, three-dimensional things, as well as archives. We have a whole wonderful archives and library division. And we are trying to make sure that generations from now, when people want to know about the real history of aviation and spaceflight, if we've done our jobs right, we should have collected the right things that would help them to know that history and to investigate it. So we are a research repository in addition to then putting those objects on display for outreach for the public. Hmm. I've never been there. Is it in Virginia or is it actually in D.C.? We actually are one museum with two sites. So the National Air and Space Museum has a building on the National Mall that opened in 1976 and that is currently undergoing a massive renovation. And then we have, in addition, the Stephen F. Ugarhazi Center that opened in 2003, and that's out in Chantilly, Virginia, the location chosen because we share a taxiway with Dulles Airport which allows the museum to be able to fly major artifacts in or out as we need to. You curate the museum's social and cultural history of spaceflight collection. What, what is that? Simply put, it is the objects that tell us about how spaceflight has been remembered and how spaceflight has been imagined. So I am responsible for a collection of over 5,000 objects, that is memorabilia of the actual space program, so pins and patches, awards, um, medals, things from an elite piece made by a jeweler and given to John Glenn in celebration of his flight in 1962 down to a Neil Armstrong for President button that you might have been able to pick up at the Cape in 1969. And the other part of the collection is the space science fiction collection, which is about how spaceflight has been 
imagined. And so that's mostly commercially available memorabilia, um, uh, games, toys, things like that, and also then a few screen-used props. So uh, I am responsible for the 11-foot studio model of the Star Trek Starship Enterprise, which is the big hero model that was used in filming the original television series in the late 1960s. So it's a real range of objects that tell you about American culture and world culture and how spaceflight has been imagined and executed. Is, did, you, did you tell us that this particular um, museum at the Smithsonian is the most popular of its museums? We are one of the most popular museums in the world, and we are very proud of that. Um, before the whole COVID pandemic, uh, the museum in the National Mall averaged around 7 million visits a year, and the museum out at Dulles Airport, uh, the Stephen F. Varhazy Center, averages about 1.5 million uh, visits a year. So it makes us a very popular, very crowded place. Hmm. And talking about the popular culture, uh, from my life, which is fairly long at this point, but the two major fictionalizations that come to mind are the one you just mentioned, Star Trek and also Star Wars. What was the impact of each of these uh, dramatic series and and how would how is the impact different? Star Trek and Star Wars are part of a long line that I say goes back to Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon starting in the late 1920s into the 30s. And I think that the these have been a part of the National Air and Space Museum's collections since the early 1970s. So these are not new kinds of objects that uh, the museum has been collecting. And the reason that we have space science fiction objects from Star Wars or Star Trek, Buck Rogers, Flash Gordon, um, things like Space Patrol uh, in the 1950s up to Babylon 5 in the 1990s is because they really are visions of what people hope might be possible when people go into space. And we know that the people who get to build and fly and test actual spacecraft are very often fans of space science fiction, and that there's an important interplay also with the people who are creating science fiction who tend to be avid readers of current science and technology and are interested in playing off of what is actually being done or what might be possible and then extrapolating that, uh, defamiliarizing that by putting it into a space setting. So it's a, I particularly love being able to work and play at that intersection between what's imagined and what's real. And I see those as very connected. And Star Trek and Star Wars are still with us. I mean, they keep making new stuff and there's the old stuff. Is there a third force, you know, uh, something I'm missing because of my age? I mean, is there something that's come along? Uh, I always think of Star Trek as more my thing. It was it started in the 60s when I was younger. And then I think of uh, maybe I hope I said that right. I think Star Trek was my thing. Star Wars was more my kids. But what about kids today? I think what's been wonderfully surprising is how long-lived these franchises have been. Um, you know, in some ways, the museum has the Star Trek Starship Enterprise studio model in the collection because in the early 1970s, that was a failed 
television show, and nobody would have expected the 50 years of major motion pictures and additional television series, the merchandising, the conventions, the Klingon Language Institute, the kinds of things that grew out of that. And I think um, Star Wars then hit a generation growing up, I would say that was really my generation, growing up uh, in the 70s and into in the 80s, uh, with this wonderfully adventurous vision of, you know, good and evil, light and dark sides of the Force, um, and great characters and toys and um, just the technical vision of what George Lucas and Lucasfilms was able to execute, I think, really floored people um, from, you know, regular moviegoers to people who were fellow movie makers. And so the power of those continuing visions, I think, has itself become a cultural phenomenon that really deserves a place in the Smithsonian Institution. Let me try the fishing expedition just one more time. But is there, and I actually don't know the answer. You usually try to know the answers to questions you ask. But is is there another strain of of science fiction that, you know, young people or kids go for today? I mean, not these two, but something else, some other kind of movies? If there's another strain of space science fiction right now, some of the really creative work is being done in video games, Um, Halo and things like that, that have this really complex world building that allow people to imagine themselves as a part of those universes because those uh, games are so immersive where you create your own character or you're really uh, running around in them. And uh, the challenge of that for a museum curator is that that is all born digital um, and experienced online. And it's hard then to find the physical three-dimensional thing that you could put on a stand and put in a case that would allow you to illustrate that. But that is one of the places where I'm seeing um, a next generation getting excited about spaces, sometimes through um, some of these really very realistic, um, well-realized video games. Margaret Weidekamp is with us. She works at the Smithsonian Institution's National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C., and chairs the Space History Department. Let me move in a, in another uh, direction. Uh, in your work, uh, studying this this field, you have a special interest in women in space, and you're the author of the book, Right Stuff, Wrong Sex, America's First Women in Space Program. The Russians beat the Americans, didn't they, in getting women into space? Yes, they did, and that's in some ways the um, end point of the book that I wrote. I, in fact, started my career really as a women's historian, and got interested in this story of a U.S. privately funded women's astronaut testing project that was conducted in the late 1950s, um, really because I was interested in the women's story. How is it that I had not heard about this medical testing, which really had raised big questions about women's bodies and women's capabilities? And I knew that I was going to need to understand the spaceflight context in order to tell that story well. Uh, but it wasn't until I had an opportunity to have a fellowship to the American Historical Association at NASA headquarters in their history office that I really immersed in 
space history and got to know more of that field. And that then dovetailed with my own personal nerddom as a space science fiction fan, I, having grown up as a Star Wars kid and having become very interested in a fan of uh, Star Trek as an adult. And so I saw a lot of connections between those things, and in many ways that's what has led me to where I am now. Hmm. Um, when you were young, w w did you hope to be part of the space program as opposed to studying space history? No, I didn't see myself as that, and I think in some ways that speaks to the ways that at the time, growing up at the 70s, that was really messaged. So I remember my brother sent a letter to NASA in the early 80s when the uh, space shuttle program was beginning, volunteering to be the first kid in space. And we know that there were dozens and dozens of kids who got excited about the space shuttle program and applied for that. Um, and he got a nice big stack. Um, envelope back full of stickers and patches and um, <laughs> literature from NASA um, that was in his room uh, throughout his childhood. But I don't know that I grew up thinking that that was something that girls could do, um, even though by the time I was in you know, junior high, then you were starting to see the women of that first class of mixed-race, mixed-sex astronauts um, that had begun in 1978, so women like Sally Ride or Kathy Sullivan or Shannon Lucid um, getting to be a part of the space program. So I've um, always been a reader and a writer, and uh, so in some ways I've come around to my excitement about space uh, through the humanities and through history. Hmm. Uh, the, the, you mentioned the some of the astronauts who have been women and continue to be, um, and then there's been a lot of attention focused in recent uh, time on the African-American women engineers on the Apollo uh, mission who've received recognition. Yes. Are there uh, other women who've worked on the space program who should be recognized? I think that part of what was so brilliant about Margot Lee Shetterly's book, Hidden Figures, was that she was able to give a name to this phenomenon of women who have been overlooked and it has allowed I've seen lots of articles and pieces about you know the hidden figures of this other industry or the hidden figures of this and being able to give a name to that phenomenon of the women who were present in these fields but who weren't recognized because the spotlight was really on the men who were in the front uh, I think has been a really important historical development. So, um, yes, there were, we know there are women who were, there were this one woman, uh, Joanne Morgan, who was in mission control. We know Poppy Northcutt was working on um, trajectories. We know that Margaret Hamilton was part of the team up at MIT that was programming the Apollo guidance computers. So we know that there were women there, and then these women, the hidden figures, uh, Mary Jackson, who NASA just named their headquarters building for, or Katherine Johnson, uh, who was a mathematician, were in many ways the kind of mathematical equivalent of the secretarial pool. They were women who were doing the equations and who were doing the backbone work that really made all of the rest of this work, but who were literally in a room doing the equations and then handing them off to 
the male engineers who were on a track to be promoted to be able to take what they knew and help to create new things. And so um, that way that women's labor was used but also relegated to the sidelines, um, I think is a really important historic development for us to understand. Yes, those women were there. Uh, they weren't given the opportunities necessarily. They weren't given the opportunities to develop who they were and to bring their full talents into aerospace. And that is something that I think all of us are really interested in seeing that turned around. President Trump has created a separate military space force, and there's buzz about missions to Mars, and private citizens want to play more of a role or go to the, or do go to the International Space Station. That's a lot of activity, but somehow it seems to me there's not that much interest in space exploration among the general public these days. What do you think? I think that you do see interest in space exploration in different ways. So I think that the attention to the SpaceX launch a few weeks ago, um, sending human beings into space from American soil for the first time in almost nine years, um, did get public interest. Um, We weren't able to see the physical crowds for that because of the pandemic, but I think that people watching online, I think there are a lot of people who follow planetary science and who are um, interested in what's going on on um, Mars, as we have rovers on that planet who are interested in these other missions that are going to the outer planets. So I think that there's some excitement there. I think uh, the development of Space Force is intended to allow the military to grasp in new ways the importance of the space environment for everything that we do on Earth. So when you think about uh, the military services, they rely increasingly, as we all do, on these constellations of satellites that are parked around this planet. So when you want to get a cup of coffee um, or get directions to go from place to place, you look at your GPS, you use your phone to tell you where those things are, that is uh, increasingly important also in the national security space. And so the creation of Space Force is less about the International Space Station, which is still really run by NASA, and more about uh, protection of the low Earth orbit environment as an extension of who we are. Hmm. Let me jump back to your life. Uh, this is, again, another fishing expedition. You earned a doctorate at Cornell, or you earned your doctorate at Cornell yeah. University in uh, nearby Ithaca, New York, to the home base of the uh, the Historian's Podcast. We're up in the Capital District. And I hope I don't insult you or something about the, the time uh, aspect, but w- when you were there, was Carl Sagan there, the guy with the billions and billions of stars? and so forth? No, um, I overlapped Sagan died. This is going to be, I would have to look it up, but uh, I did not overlap with Carl Sagan when I was at Ithaca, and I was there for the history department, not necessarily for the astronomy department. Uh, but Sagan's presence, I think, was always still uh, very palpable in Ithaca and in the Cornell community as someone who had been so important for. Um, millions of people coming to really 
think in different ways about humanity's place in the cosmos. Um, and I did have the opportunity as a historian at one point to get to um, interview his wife uh, in Adrian about her role working with him when they were putting the Voyager Interstellar record together, and uh, which is that golden record that's on the side of the Voyager as a bit of a uh, message in a bottle of, uh, you know, a signature, if you will, of humanity to this object that we were going to be sending out into deep space. And so um, I was very aware of him and um, how much creative and imaginative thinking had started from Ithaca, New York, looking out into the solar system. And I've had this now very uh, embarrassing memory lapse, which I'm, I'm subject to, I'm trying to think of, in a way, today's Carl Sagan. He's on TV all the time. You know who I'm talking about? He's on with... Oh, Neil deGrasse uh, Tyson. Yeah, tell me the name yes. one more time. Neil deGrasse Neil, Tyson. Neil deGrasse yeah. Tyson, who is an astronomer and the, um, at the Hayden Planetarium in New York, and who hosted um, an updated version of Cosmos, that uh, popular television program that brought so much very good science and science history to um, American audiences. Does he ever ever call you up and say, well, Margaret, I'm working on this problem. (laughs) uh, Does he use your resources, I guess? Uh, The museum has um, been very pleased to have a good relationship with uh, Dr. Tyson and is a great admirer of his work. He was uh, the host for NASA's 40th anniversary of Apollo 11 events that were held at the museum, um, and at that point, I was also helping to coordinate the museum's John F- John H. Glenn Jr. lecture series, where we brought the three Apollo astronauts in um, for the anniversary in 2009. So, um, being able to work with those kinds of luminaries in the field is one of the real perks of being at the Smithsonian. I mentioned your uh, book about women in the American space program. This is, you know, again, far afield and something completely different. But right now you're working on a children's picture book called Pluto's Secret. I you know it's obvious probably, but what's that about? Well, that book actually came out in um, 2013. And that was a book that came as a result of my collaboration with uh, two colleagues, David Dvorkin, who is a museum senior curator of astronomy, and Diane Kidd, who is an award-winning children's book illustrator. And David came back from the International Astronomical Union meeting in 2006 in Prague and talking about what everyone was talking about at the moment, which was the vote to reclassify Pluto and say that Pluto was no longer a planet, and that that actually helped astronomers to better define what a planet was, which was something that honestly hadn't been defined in astronomy until 2006. Um, It was just kind of assumed the way that we know what an ocean is or what a continent is, even though if you really think deeply about those definitions, they're a little bit fuzzy around the edges. So um, that was a story that David was writing as a professional historian and that I thought would be interesting to children and to families. And so I wrote the book. David made sure I got all of the history right. 
and Diane really brought it to life uh, with her illustrations. And so we've been very pleased with the reception that uh, our award-winning Pluto Secret book has gotten. It's uh, really written to be read aloud, so it works for the youngest uh, children, and um, then I think also it has good history and information that is uh, important and good up through a grade school age. Hmm. Pluto's Secret is the name of the book. Well, let me, you know, ask you the ultimate uh, fishing expedition question. What what do you think is important in space history? I think what's important in space history is a history of what was possible, and that's really defined by the physics of what's possible and people figuring that out, um, the biology of what human beings can and cannot do, but also the politics of what can be funded, what can be popularly supported, what fits in with the geopolitical moment at the time, and then what's kind of culturally possible, what we've been able to imagine and therefore visualize in a way that we can actually execute it. And so I see that as one of the kind of that mm-hmm. question of what's possible and why is, I think, one of the things that really helps us to dive into the complex history of spaceflight and understand it not just as a history of technology or science, but also as a social and cultural history mm-hmm. that's very mm-hmm. politically grounded. Yes. In fact, I remember we did a program about uh, the uh, anniversary of the moon landing, and the, we had a gentleman on who'd written a book. He was based in kind of NASA and a professor from uh, uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. But uh, the point I think both of them made was that you had to keep in mind that that space program wasn't so much because, let's say, Kennedy loved science. He saw this as a, as a power struggle with the Soviet Union. This was something that he wanted the U.S. to, to win, to look better than the Russians. Very much so. This is a uh, political battlefield of the Cold War. Um, And when you had two nuclear-armed superpowers that couldn't afford to have that conflict spill over into a hot shooting war, it needed to be displaced into other sites of conflict. And spaceflight is one of the places where literally the actual launch vehicles that had been created for nuclear weapon delivery as missiles could be turned then to these peaceful purposes of sending satellites or sending human beings into space. Um, And the capability of doing that always had a very clear shadow of demonstrating a nation's capability to do the same kinds of things militarily. Hmm. What do you say to people who say, we shouldn't be spending money on space. We need. We have so many problems here. I think that all of the money that gets spent on space gets spent on Earth, and right. then it also affects really how we live. We live in a space age. We um, communicate because of uh, the assets that have been developed. We receive our packages. Um, And so I think that when you start to dig into the ways that the architecture of spaceflight really shapes your everyday life, it is something that most 
people would be very surprised by how big of a change it would make if that suddenly went away. Um, and so I think that um, there's an aspirational aspect to spaceflight, to the excitement of being able to step off this planet and explore other things, both with human beings and through planetary science robotically uh, and remotely. And um, so I think that those benefits to humanity are mm-hmm. things that it would be very hard to fully step away from. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.